Lovers of score, film music enthusiasts, Check the Score is back. It's been way too long, but in the meantime and in between time, I've discovered lots of new score music, while of course returning to those familiar old themes that have always kept me company. One of the new scores that has made me lose my mind, or rather, my head, is for the latest film from A24, David Lowry's The Green Knight. And it comes from a composer whose music for cinema is very dear to me, the gifted and talented Daniel Hart. I first discovered Hart's music back in 2017 when I went alone one afternoon to see a ghost story. The impact that movie had on me cannot be overstated, and I count it among the most profound cinematic experiences I've ever had. Daniel's music, featured prominently in that film, was a big reason why, and since then, I've become an avid follower. In addition to a ghost story, Hart has been the trusted composer on all of David Lowry's films, including Ain't Them Body Saints, Pete's Dragon, The Old Man and the Gun, and most recently, The Green Knight, where Lowry reaches back into Arthurian lore to fashion his interpretation of the 14th century tale, Sir Garwin and the Green Knight. Each Lowry project has given Hart an opportunity to explore a different musical palette, this time the themes were set in a world of medieval instrumentation and verse, which I discovered was not all that foreign to Daniel. I was actually thinking of changing the name of this show to I Ask Too Many Questions, because as you're about to hear, I went on yet another deep dive, or should I say a deep walk this time, with Daniel on a trail through the woods of Altadena where he lives. It was the ideal setting for a conversation about his music for A24's latest gem, or in this case, Emerald. We got into Daniel's process about that score, and also delved into the grand lineage of Arthurian tale films The Green Knight now joins, including the wonderfully mediocre Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, where we exchange a winking acknowledgement of a shared big early movie crush on the beautiful Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. Something that became clear pretty soon into our walk and talk is that Daniel is one of those truly learned composers of the form, the history, the theory, the predecessors. Pretty much everything I asked him, he not only fielded, but pitched back with scholarly insight. We got into the thicket on our ramble in the bramble, and before I realized it, we were at the end of the trail without even getting into his superb jazz score that accompanied Robert Redford's final leading role and the old man in the gun, or the music he composed for one of the great narrative podcasts ever, S-Town. But fear not. We spoke about all sorts of things, including his take on the use of electronic music in mainly orchestral scores, and the upcoming releases from his band Dark Rooms. There are dogs in this episode, there are birds, there are horses in this episode. So come ye, follow us on this journey. Hi. Yes. Hey. hey, man. Here we are. Here we are. Is this your normal walking trail? One of them. Yeah. Yeah. Is that really? Is that NASA headquarters? It's not headquarters, but oh. it's where they make the rockets. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
Very cool. This is Daphne. Hi, Daphne. She loves people. <laughs> nice. Lucky. He's terrified of people. Okay. I saw Tenet not in theaters. I did not see it in theaters either. I, from what I saw in my home, I thought that I would have enjoyed it a lot more in a theater. In a theater. It yeah. felt like a big part of the experience. Because I, I think about that movie a fair amount since, since I've seen it a few weeks ago. And the things that I think about have a lot to do with the technical movie making. Mm -hmm. and how special that part of it was. So the thing that, that I think about when I think about it are, are the things that I appreciate most about a theatrical experience. Yeah, and the music being one of them, right? Hearing, the music, yeah. Hearing them on yeah, those on the, on Dolby those speakers, speakers around everything. Very satisfying. I guess anyone with the resources could do that in their home, but how many people have that much money and that much space to recreate a theatrical experience yeah. <laughs> in their homes. No, there's nothing like quite like hearing all the sound design and all the music swirling around your head in the dark. That's why I think everybody started, well, maybe not in this generation, but everybody generations prior started going to the movies in the first place. So they could go escape into another world in a dark big room for two hours it it's i hope it stays around i consider it a part of my enjoyment of life yeah me too you know the sound designer johnny marshall for green knight when he put in the the sounds for the green knight himself which basically sounds like a giant tree bending and bowing. Oh yes, I noticed that. And Amazing stuff. So satisfying. Yes. To hear in a theater. Like I heard it so many times when I was working on the film at home in my studio. And my studio speakers are, are nice, but they're not like theater speakers. And yeah, hearing it in that space, just this giant, it was like a giant oak standing up is uh, magical, <laughs> totally magical. One of, the, one of the sound design parts that really stood out to me. And do you know how he got that? Like, no. at, like a tree at night, just you know, listening to a tree sway in the wind or something? Or? That's what it sounds like yeah. to me, but no, I didn't. I've worked with Johnny a few times now. And even though we're basically working on the same part of the film, like all the sounds that are not dialogue or dialogue or fully. Um, our, our work doesn't overlap. So I know very little about how he did what he did okay. in the Green Knight, but uh, very special. So what, so essentially he's taking your score and kind of doing the blending? Yeah, I okay. feel like it's not always that way. Like mm -hmm. later when Garwin and, and the Green Knight face off against each other, you get the sounds of the Green Knight getting off his horse and then stepping on the ground and walking forward. And it's more of those giant tree sounds. 
the thumps. Yeah. Yeah. Moving around. I had those from Johnny when I was working and one of the instruments that I used on the score is, is a nickel harpa, which is a medieval Swedish instrument. Mm -hmm. It's a bowed string instrument. It was used in the witch as well. And who did the witch score? I can't remember. Mark Corvin. Is oh, right. Name. Mark Corvin. Yeah. I like him a lot. He did yeah, the, the, the lighthouse. He did. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's doing all of Egger's movies. So, so yeah, nickel harpa, it's yeah, used in the witch quite a lot. It's used in uh, the Thor movies quite a lot because, you know, it's, it's an old sounding Swedish instrument. Right. <laughs> it got used in Loki quite a bit, Loki the TV show. So, so I had this instrument that is, it's played with a bow on strings, but instead of putting your finger on those strings like you would on a guitar or a violin, you press these wooden keys on the side of the instrument, like well, almost like a medieval keytar. Mm -hmm. and, and you press the keys and, and then the wooden keys depress the strings for you. So it's got a very percussive nature to it. a bit in the score for the Green Knight, making little quick and clack noises just by pressing the keys without bowing any strings. So it's just the percussion. And I did that, I timed it to the Green Knight's footsteps. Uh, but then when they were doing the final edit, that got shifted. I think David, the director, probably shifted it. So in the film, it, it, they don't line up anymore. I had lined them up and now they don't, they don't line up. So you get the footstep and then you get a little click and a footstep and then another little click. And that's only, I, I'm one of like four people who know that that's score and sound design working together. Like mm -hmm. anybody else I think would hear it and just think it's all just one of a piece. So that's where you can't tell the difference basically. I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. yeah. It feels like all one thing to me. I, I love that. It's fun when it works, when it when there really is that kind of fluidity there, you know, they run into each other, but they pass each other, you know, it's like they're, they're almost going to collide and yet they don't, yes. that kind of thing. Yes, that's when I think it's the most successful, right. that's my favorite version of it. like in all of these Arthurian movies of which there are quite a few I I looked up all of the Arthurian legend movies and there have been a lot there's so many it's it's amazing especially lately yeah 
And that's an interesting thing about why that kind of, uh, I guess it goes to this whole mythical backbone that never fails in storytelling. And, and, and you think of Ulysses and you think of old Greek myths in that way too. They can be retold and retold in yes. different ways. Yes. And then there's, there's a significant American obsession with uh, British culture. Mm -hmm. I think that contributes to that it. for sure. Yep. Do you have any favorites? Like I, I could think of maybe the first one I ever saw was Excalibur when I was five years old. Oh, in terms of Arthurian film? Yeah. Robin Hood, the Disney cartoon. Uh-huh. I really like that one. <laughs> I really liked uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves when I was a kid. You did? Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, Alan Rickman as the Sheriff of Nottingham. Yeah, the, the ultimate villain of movies ultimate of all villain. time. Yes, yes, of all time. Yeah. And uh, the score by Michael Kamen is so bombastic and triumphant and complex. Arthurian movies don't quite have as substantial a musical development to dig into as Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves did. And Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio as, as Maid Marian. Well, I had a really big crush on her. When oh I was, my God, so did I. When I was a kid. <laughs> it started in the January Man with oh, Kevin Costner. Yeah. I mean, uh, Kevin Klein. Kevin Klein. That's yeah. when it started for me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm right there with you. Whew. Right um, there with you. So I, I did rewatch it recently, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And first of all, it's a very wide ranging mixture of good and terrible. Like there's so many things about the film, um, like Kevin Costner's acting that are, that are very disappointing. Yeah. And, and, and coming and going accents throughout. Coming and going accents. Mostly going. Yes, <laughs> mostly going. Christian Slater's accent also mostly <laughs> going um, so many good-looking people living in a forest foraging starving that's right so they look they look so beautiful um and the score is also this mix i think of good and terrible because that this was a phase in in cayman's career what he, where he would do these huge pop song tie-ins oh, to the man. movies that he was working on. And so, you know, there's the Brian Adams song, Everything I Do, I Do It For You, that in, is on the Robin, Robin Hood. It's in, it's in, it's in Robin Hood. It's, it, it's just in the end credits, I think. Right. It's the big end credit song. But the thing that, the thing that Cayman was doing at the time was he would like make 30% of the score that song like in orchestral form to build up to it, you know. And so parts of the score, very complex, nuanced 
orchestral work, parts of the score, super cheesy pop song being played by an orchestra. And he had like three in a row, and, and it was, I mean, I guess it depends on what your goals are. If his goal was to make a whole lot of money off of giant pop song successes, he achieved it, because there were like three in a row. There was that one, then Don Juan DeMarco. Oh boy. There was another Brian Adams song in that, and he did the score for that, and there was one more I'm, for, I'm forgetting. Um, Blatantly out of place pop songs. It really doesn't pieces. make any sense no. to me. It was in in of the fashion, I guess, in that at that time, maybe. Yeah. Like early '90s, that was happening more, I guess. Yeah. I, can, I can't think of specifics, but I can, I definitely know that there were pop songs in movies that where they didn't belong. Yeah. Sure. I, I feel like it's not happening as much now. No. That nobody's not nobody. Most people aren't swinging that wide <laughs> yeah. with movie music. Right. Like not taking that many big chances. Speaking of other Arthurian tales in films, and one, one, two that were a big influence, it sounds like, on David Lowry, one of them was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yes. And that is still John Williams, right? Yes. Okay. And how about that one? Did that one? I love that film. Engage you like it did, David. I I haven't read what he's written about it, so I don't know how it engaged him, but I did absolutely loved that film yeah. as a kid. Yeah, me too. It really made an impression on me. I think that's another thing about these movies, these Arthurian-related movies, is that uh, at the time that the movies we're talking about were made, it seemed like the Crusades were full of glory or something, when in fact it's like really terrible <laughs> things happening to people in the name of religion but that seems conquest really, really, in the name of religion yeah, yeah but it feels totally fake like that's just like a, a fake reason to go kill a bunch of people and try and take their stuff from them you know so so that's in my understanding today i see that that's glossed over at the time the villains are the nazis the villains are not the people who went on the crusades it could be both um, it certainly wasn't. It uh, di it di distracts you from the reality of the situation. Yeah, uh, it's it's yeah. just sim it's simply not addressed at right. all in the yeah. film. That's not a concern. Check your moral values at the door, I guess. <laughs> yeah, another one was Willow. Uh, we've talked about Willow so much, David and I. That was, I guess, a big touchstone for the, for the Green Knight. Yes. Well, he he loves that film so much. I rewatched it sometime in the last couple of years. I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. He's seen it uh, countless times. Uh-huh. Uh, it is so silly. It is. It is so, so silly, but I, I did enjoy watching it again. There's that one big melody in the score of Willow. <laughs> That one? Is that from Willow? Yeah. Oh, I was thinking
that's James Horner doing his best John Williams, basically. Yes. Yes. Or doing his best any neo-romantic composer. <laughs> right. <laughs> his best Wagner, his best Mahler, his best late Beethoven. Yes. Yeah, there were some great themes of that. Very victorious, uh, yes. thrilling, rushing themes in that one. Yes, and I, I think when I watched Willow and listened to it, I was doing that for the purposes of getting ready for Peter Pan, which we're working on now. I wanted to analyze the rhythmic structure of that, the theme that I just hummed, that we have hummed together from Willow. Hey there. I wanted to see why it felt so classic, mm -hmm. why it's stuck in my head, how it worked in the film, how often it was used. You've seen uh, the newer Star Trek movies? Yeah, well, not all of them. But the first one that came out in, uh, in 2011? Yes. That J.J. Abrams did. And yeah. Giacchino did the score and he introduced his big new Star Trek theme. I was really surprised how much that theme reoccurs throughout the film. It just happens over and over and over again. And to, to its credit, it's, it, it works. It doesn't feel tiresome, but I was surprised how much it's in there. Or like Last of the Mohicans, mm -hmm. the big theme from Last of the Mohicans. It's just that theme, like over and over and over again. Whereas in Willow, that theme that I just hummed, I think it only happens a, like two or three times, maybe? Right, in like action sequences or something? Yeah. When they're like sledding on the snow and on the shield? Yeah. Or, like <laughs> or something the, like that. In the big sword fight towards the end. Same with um, like Beetlejuice. The theme that I know from Beetlejuice again, only happens maybe twice in the film, mm -hmm. in the entire film, and doesn't, doesn't even happen at all until like an hour into the film. E.T., you don't get that main melody until, I don't know, like 50 minutes into the film, or maybe even an hour into the film. But um, John Williams is building to it the entire time. Yes. He gets little parts of the melody in there, parts of the theme, in other contexts to set it up. Sneakily. Yeah, but I was, uh, I, uh, another one that I've gone back to recently to reference, and I was, again, surprised by how little of that incredibly memorable theme that's imprinted on my brain since childhood is actually in the film. Not very much. Not much. No. Maybe it does just take that one time, though, at that right moment of dramatic climax, and then it, the, every, the combination of everything just, makes its mark on you. For yeah. the best composers, Yeah, I, they can do that, I think. I always go to Chariots of Fire for that, mm. you know? Like every time that cue play, that theme plays, I, I'm sprinting outside of the theater. <laughs> all I, I'm thinking of it now in my head, and all I can see is people running. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it. All, that's all I can see. That's it. They're running in slow motion, but... Uh, right, right, running, running in slow motion and, and gradually smiling <laughs> as you're running in slow motion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you're about to win the race. Yes.
to my eyes, the first, I don't know, the first maybe third to half of the film is really kind of cloaked in shadow mm. and darkness. And mm. there's a lot of contrast and there's the only light is really coming from windows or candles or open doors. Yeah. And then when it reaches the, the beginning of the chapter, the journey out. Yeah, where he's out in the world. Mm -hmm. Not indoors anymore, not in castles anymore. That was my favorite cue that kind of um, began that, that part of the film for me. Um, I guess it's, I promise you will not come to harm. Yeah, as he's getting ready to leave mm -hmm. and his mom is making him a, a green belt to wear to protect him yeah. on his journey. Yep. And then he's outdoors and then all of a sudden that piece of music, I guess with its the staccato strings, yeah. that hadn't shown up to that point yet. No. And then it opens you up into this next chapter. To me, that kind of cue represents like this mythical heroism that mm. that's at at the the heart of these stories, the best. Uh -huh. And I don't know what it is. Do you, can you enlighten me maybe about what it is about staccato strings and that form that that does that that signifies that? So that technique of violin playing that happens in this key we're talking about, I promise you will not come to harm. That technique is called arpeggiando, like an arpeggio, which is a statement of the main notes in a chord to tell you what kind of chord it is. And an arpeggiando is like a never-ending version of that. It's been used by tons of composers and tons of different styles, but in modern film-related knowledge, I think it's most associated with the composer Arvo Pert, oh, yeah. whose music is... And I didn't know until just now that's how to pronounce his name. Okay, so... That's just a, that's a guess based on the umlaut over the A. Um, I can't 100% guarantee you that I've got that right. I part. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, Arvo, Arvo uses it in a few different, uh, in some of his most well-known pieces. And those pieces are very film-esque, even right. though they were not written for film. Have they been used in film? Well, they get used, especially the last 10 years or so, in my limited experience, they get used like nonstop in temp music by directors and editors. Right. Because they work so well for the exact kind of thing that you're talking about. Like they're, they're very wide and open, but they're busy enough to have like a motor to keep to like drive things. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they feel sort of grand in a way, even when it's just one instrument doing it, which most of the time it is. Um, and that makes it easy like an easy technique for films with smaller budgets because you just need one person to create a sound that feels um, kind of majestic. Mm -hmm. So it gets used a lot as tent music in the films that I work on anyway. But mm -hmm. also I talk to my composer friends and yeah, they run into Arvo quite a bit. I've heard that name a lot amongst too. composers, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I love his work. Yeah. I'm happy to hear him in films or in anywhere else, but there is a, a danger of having everything ending up sounding kind, almost like Arvo Parrot, but not as good as Arvo Parrot. Yeah, <laughs> right. But anyway, I, I've been using arpeggiando in scores probably since I started writing scores 
because of some of the reasons that I just talked about. Like, yeah. It's um, not expensive to make. It can be very big. Uh, it's one of the things that I learned fairly early on in playing the violin. Like I was probably 11 or 12 years old when I learned how to do that. And it's really fun to do. So it makes for an easy choice when looking at the choice, the possibility of choices that could be made to create something grand or move something that like moves quickly. Yeah, it does. It 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 kind of infuses the story with this energy mm. that something is about to begin and something is about something consequential is about to happen and pay attention and here we go. first music I wrote for that scene did not have that feel to it. It didn't have an arpeggiando violin in it, and it didn't work. Um, David wasn't crazy about it, and he asked me to try something else, and, and I, I don't, I have to look it up, I don't remember what his notes were, but whatever he said made me think I should try this here to see if it works because I know that it has worked before in yeah. other similar situations. Yeah. And I did put it there and it did work and he was very happy with it. And that led to that same technique coming back at the end of the film. It's like the, the final two pieces of music in the film are these like longer medleys of score that, that follow a, a montage where there's basically no dialogue for 12 minutes yeah and the both of those two pieces are centered around an arpeggiando violin restating the grandness of the epic journey from when he leaves the castle in the mm -hmm. first place so it kind of came back around yeah 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 it came back around well i wanted to ask you about you mentioned david and you and i've heard you mention it before that he wasn't it wasn't um, clicking for him in the beginning. It wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't like it. And in those situations, 
what do you do when, I mean, does doubt start to creep in? I mean, it sounds oh, yeah. like, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, it was the first time. That's the thing, it's like, we've been working together now for 12 years. And this is our eighth film together, I think. And this is the real, the, really the first time that we've ever had this much trouble finding what we were looking for. He had trouble finding the film that he wanted to make. And consequently, I had trouble finding the score that he wanted for that film. And uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely a surprise because everything up to this that we've worked on, it felt like each film got a little bit easier than the previous one because we were building up this connection and shorthand of communication. We didn't have, we had to say less and less to each other back and forth to understand what music would be the right music for what we were working on together. And so then for this one to just continually not work, it wasn't like, it wasn't like everything failed. Um, there are some parts of the score that are taken directly from the very first demos that I made for the film verbatim so so some things worked right but there were other things that didn't work at all on the first or second try like usually it's put something in and and then edit it until it gets closer to what you're looking for in this case it was like put something in nope start over completely nope start over completely again it's not usually the way with us it happens plenty um, on other stuff that I work on where I don't know the people as well, mm -hmm. and we don't have quite that same connection and, and ease of communication. So it was surprising, and yeah, it made me doubtful about my abilities to find what David was looking for for this film, and it made me doubtful about my abilities as a composer. I think that has more to do with my own insecurities or my own questions about self-esteem or my abilities as a composer than it has to do with anything else well it shines it puts a mirror up to your face in that sense right it's yeah like, <laughs> it's like hey this isn't working i'm yeah. i'm part of the reason it's not working yeah and what do i do so i'm curious i'm really curious about each individual's composer's answer to this what do you do when you have composer's block are there techniques are there do you, what do you what, or specifically in this situation, what did you do to, I know you wrote a song yeah. to kind of break, break through. Yeah. But what kinds of things do you do when you're, all this, you're sweating all of a sudden and you're thinking to yourself, Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm out of my depth here. I learned when we were working together on Pete's Dragon in 2016 at Disney, I learned that going for at least one walk every day, like in the middle of the workday, creates space for work to be done without pressure. And so walking is usually a time when I can find a lot of solutions for the stuff that I can't solve sitting in front of the computer. Um, just playing my instrument is another thing that I do if I'm blocked. I'll just, um, my, my training is on violin first before any other instrument, so I, I'm most proficient at violin. So I'll pick up violin or maybe viola 
I'll pick those up and just start playing, playing anything, improvising. Not working on music related to the film or whatever project it is that I'm blocked on. And that, uh, that's a good head clearing exercise. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes I just have to like take a day off and, and walk away like my brain isn't ready yet to solve the problem or it's working in ways that I can't tangibly perceive and I just need to let it work that stuff out. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like you kind of went through a number of, well, I made a breakthrough and no, I didn't. It's kind of yeah, totally in this situation. Yeah. I wrote a piece of music for the scene when Garwin runs away from his beheading towards the end of the film. Uh-huh. When he when he he chickens out and decides not to follow through with the beheading game. And Go, Garwin runs and runs. Garwin runs and runs. I was yeah. going to ask. That was the that was the song that broke through. That was not the song oh. that broke through. That was a song later on. Um, where something wasn't working and David said let's put a song here but no the first thing that I wrote for that didn't quite work and so then I had an idea for it that was uh, modeled after something from North by Northwest by Bernard Herrmann doesn't feel stylistically appropriate necessarily but rhythmically I, I wanted to borrow something from there and try and recreate that but Bernard Herrmann's music is very complex and it's one of the reasons that I love it so much and so I was not so sure if I could actually approach something at the level of the stuff I had heard in North by Northwest that I wanted to try and capture a piece of and and I tried it and I felt like it was really successful like it's I'm no Bernard Herrmann but this this cue definitely accomplished the goals that I was trying to accomplish right mm -hmm. And I was, I was really kind of surprised and happy with it. And I sent it off to David and he just didn't like it. Hmm. Oh, sorry, buddy. There you go. Yeah, he just, he just said, uh, this doesn't really work. I was like, well, there's no editing that to make it yeah. fit. If, it's, if that approach isn't going to work, then I just have to start over again. The, the breakthrough song is called Eganso Kultsfazur. And that was for the scene when Garwin first runs into the giants. Okay, yes. In the middle of the film. And I had written a cue there that was much more orchestral in nature, like a big bombastic kind of orchestral cue. And David felt like that didn't quite fit. Like he wanted it to fit. Like we both wanted this moment to be like a really big moment when he runs into the giants. But I could tell when I wrote it, like I, I felt happy with the piece itself. But when watching it with the film, it was just there were parts of it that didn't match up. And I, and I thought, well, I'm going to send this to him, and then he and I together will figure out how to mold it into the thing that it actually needs to be. But he felt like it just it, this approach was not going to work because the film itself was asking for something else, not asking for a big bombastic orchestral cue, even though on paper that looks like what it needs when someone meets a bunch of giants. Um, that, that wasn't right for these images. And so that David asked me to try writing a song there. And that's the song that I wrote. And that was 
one of the first moments where he felt like, okay, now, now we're on the right track. Like now we can move forward and this will help us find other things. And it was the first of many songs that, that I wrote. And, and in other scenes where things weren't working, I, he just was like, well, how about, a, how about another song here? Um, so we resorted to songs to save us quite a bit in this score. And it was sung by our choir in London that recorded all the choral parts for the score. And this woman, Emma Tring, was the lead soprano in that choir, that small choir that we had. And I didn't know her before this film. She, she was hired by our orchestral contractor, Bridget Samuels, who is brilliant and who, who is Mika Levy's contractor, like hires the orchestras for all of Mika's film scores. And, and um, yeah, she found this choir and she found Emma. So I didn't know really what to expect before we started recording the choir in, in London. And it couldn't have been better. Like, I mean, you know what they're saying, it's just like a little piece of magic. The introduction and the kind of, I would say, liberal use of choral in, in this score, was that, is that kind of where it started to take its shape? When you brought the voices and the chorus in, was that kind of something that was the gel and that, that hadn't been there before? Were you, or was, were you trying choral pieces even before when it wasn't working? Yeah, there was choral stuff all the way through the process. When we talked about it at the very beginning, before David started filming, we talked about the kind of instrumentation that we both thought we wanted for the score. And I, yeah, I wanted a small choir in there. It felt like a time appropriate to me since people have been singing, since people have been people. And also because this film has a much heavier religious Christian aspect to it because of that Christian mythology related to Arthur. Um, it's one of the things that I associate most with church is choirs, choral singing. Both my parents are choir directors. Oh. Both uh, church musicians their entire career or music educators. So it, it felt very natural to me. It felt like something that would work for the score. And, and yeah, again, in places it worked great and in places it didn't. Mm -hmm. But um, that didn't stop me from trying to put in as much choir as I could anywhere, anywhere it would fit. When I heard that first main choral song, you do smell like you've been at mass all night. Yes. <laughs> Which I love that line. Oh, I do too. Very um, satisfying. When I heard it again after seeing the film, I immediately started singing it along to it. Ah, and that's it, cool. As to you, sweet Lord, there's your last aisle. Hebrew, Benoel. 
So that made me recognize, wow, this this stuck with me when I first saw it. Because I, I listened to the score afterwards and I started doing that. And it, choral music was a really, especially in religious settings, that was the main form of, of expression in yeah, those times, right? Yeah, totally. That song feels to me like, uh, like, a, like a children's hymn that I would have sung as a kid in yeah, church. Yeah. That's, that's how it feels to me. The melody from it was taken from a piece that I'd written for the little hand puppets show that happens within the film. I'd written a piece for recorders to play during those sections, and that piece was scrapped, never made the cut for those scenes. But when we needed a melody for that song, that, I was like, well, this, this melody already belongs to this film. It, it shows up in a, well, like one or two other places being played by instruments. So I was like, why not yeah. just be consistent? So that's well, where it came from. Something very catchy about it. And it kind of, in, it, it, I loved the way it introduced the characters, particularly Garwin. I don't know, there's something that was, that made me want to sing along to it, but the, the choral use in other parts of the film is, is very stark and cold mm. and Dungeness, sure, and not something that you would necessarily want to listen to on not, your own not, time. Not a sing along. <laughs> and there, but there is this abrupt transition from choral to synth, and one year hence. Yeah, that's very welcoming to the ears. Even though the mm. synth it, itself is also very dark, mm. something about that kind of break from that pitched choral kind of presence yeah, into that low-end pulse of a synth was very, was almost like a, a respite, you know? When you're working with voices that are not necessarily soothing to the ear throughout a film like this, yeah, does it get to you? Does it start? No, it is so soothing to me. Even it's, when they're not uh, harmonious, I can and, listen to it all day long. Huh. Yeah, wow. I, I don't know why. It's very gratifying. Maybe even like the dissonance is just as satisfying to me as the songs. Wow. I'm not sure what it is. I really love dissonant choral music. I guess just like that choral background. From yeah, right. From my childhood. Not that we listened to a lot of dissonant choral music when I was a child. Yeah, I don't know where that comes from. Yeah, let's see what's gonna happen with this guy. Yeah.